0: You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, let me you know. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make it an offer. You talking to me? Straight out of the train! I don't know who you are. Why, oh, so simple. When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, yes. I'm better. He's lion! Step out of it! If call me Miss Step best of mother. you have no style. You're going to all day, little dog. No. Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Hope everybody had a great week. I spent mine scheduling more things than I ever have, I think, in my entire life. And now I have to edit a bunch of audio for work now, so I will never escape the clutches of Adobe Edition between work and doing this podcast. But at least right now, I'm looking down the barrel of a three-day weekend, and I cannot wait to do nothing and sleep. This week on Movie Theater Movie Reviews, we've got Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania. Don't worry, I did not give any spoilers. Quantumania was the perfect example of a film having a great design, but a horrible script. This is a filler movie in the worst way, which was a bummer. They took out everything that made the first two Ant-Mans unique from the other Corral of Marvel movies and tried to make Paul Rudd's character more like generally heroic and it didn't feel like he was the scott lang of the prior films the movie wasn't bad per se just woefully generic which is an era marvel should have left in the dust years ago they've had what 31 of these movies so far and like eight television series this movie is given off some big time phase one basic ass storytelling Highlight of this film is definitely the new-ish villain, Kang the Conqueror, though Marvel really needs to flush out his whole multiverse situation. Trying to keep it mysterious is now just obnoxious. It's been like alluded to for like five years now, four years, and it's, it's just getting annoying. And yes, I've seen Loki and I rewatched that episode and it's still just too messy for my taste. Overall, right now, the MCU is feeling very disjointed, and this has not bode well for the rumbling Marvel fatigue people are reportedly starting to feel. Gotta give us something, Marvel. Come on now. Anyway, on to this week's topic. This week, the artists whose job it is to make the pretty people even more pretty, or ugly, or look like monsters, and anything else in between. We're going into the history of hair and makeup artists, the modern responsibilities of the job, and the education one might need to get this job. With that, let's take our places. It's showtime. always, let's start off with what hair and makeup people do, in case it wasn't obvious. In short, a hair and or makeup artist is responsible for transforming actors into their characters for a film. They work closely with the costume designer and director to create the desired look for each character. They use various techniques, such as wigs, hairstyling, makeup, prosthetics, and special effects to enhance an actor's appearance and bring the character to life. The hair and makeup artist must also consider the lighting and camera angles that will be used during filming and adjust their work accordingly. Additionally, they must ensure that the actor's hair and makeup remain in place during long days of shooting and are touched up as needed. Hair and makeup are generally separate departments on a film set, though maybe one and the same person on smaller productions. However, unsurprisingly, the two departments collaborate together frequently. Also, just as a heads up and be as transparent as possible, this episode does skew way more makeup heavy as there was only so much that I could find in the way of hair in comparison. hope you're not too disappointed, but Dems to breaks, kids. So now, let's get into the history of this medium. Makeup and hairstyling has been around since the ancient days, culminating in the precursor for makeup in film, which was of course its usage within the theater. Actors would heavily exaggerate their features for stage work as their faces needed to be able to be read from great distances. With the birth of cinema and the closeness of the camera to the performer, an increase in the quality of makeup would be invented for actors, and eventually these tools would spread to the entire world. But back in those earliest days of filmmaking, the materials at a performer's disposal were not awesome. Actors, who were also responsible for applying their own makeup, would wear grease paint to accentuate their skin tones, along with black eyeliner and dark red lipstick. This was done to offset the effects of the film, which was orthochromatic. This basically means that the film was sensitive to all types of light, but red, which is why in dark rooms, the lights are always red. Problem with this, you know it tends to have a lot of red undertones, skin specifically Caucasian skin, but even those with darker skin tones would be washed out due to this issue. POC performers who would actually get hired to play their own races versus a white actor being used in brown, yellow, blackface, or what have you, which, you know, not a great look from our historical vantage point, would also have to heavily darken their skin so it would show up looking like their actual skin tone on camera. For African-American performers, this was called double blacking and often made their faces look unrealistic because all detail would be a essentially erased once applied the grease paint which had been made for use in the theater which had cooler lights would harden freezing the actor's faces before cracking or it would just full-on run down a performer's face if not applied darkly enough certain brands of red lipstick used for performers would appear white on camera why they didn't use a different shade i could not find a reason i'm i'm assuming it didn't exist otherwise why wouldn't you Unsurprisingly, all of this led to a slew of continuity issues, and as films got longer, that was going to make all the changes in makeup between shots a lot more jarring. It would be Max Factor, yes, that is also the name of a person, not just a brand, who would change the way Hollywood made up their performers. A European immigrant, as well as an experienced wig maker, Factor's work with the medium of hair and makeup would finally locate a marriage between the science of filmmaking and the art of makeup. Factor broke into the film industry in 1910 after seeing the inadequate materials that had transitioned from theater to film. This included straw being used for wigs and, of course, those lovely greased up faces that slowly turned to plaster. Factor developed his own brand of grease paint that could be applied to the skin from a jar like a face cream versus the stick method that had been used before that. They literally just, like, rubbed a stick all over their faces, apparently. It was also significantly lighter and would not photograph as a thick paste. Additionally, he would also create henna shampoos, skin dyes, and the ability to create fake wounds. He also leveled up the wigs, making them from real human hair instead of straw. I'm sure that people with allergies very much appreciated that. Thanks to his efforts, by 1917, hair and makeup was seen as a crucial part of the filmmaking process. The quote-unquote star face became something that women all over the world would use makeup to achieve, and when that didn't work, the ones with means would resort to plastic surgery. I don't even want to know what plastic surgery looked like in a world a decade removed from the invention of penicillin, but I don't imagine it can be good. Panchromatic film, meaning stock that was sensitive to all wavelengths of light, became the standard by the end of the 1920s. This new film stock meant a new standard of lighting things, which meant that Factors' makeup didn't look as good under the new tungsten lights that became standard, which burned with an orange hue. These new lights were also way hotter and melted the Factor makeup right off the actors' faces. Eventually, he developed the panchromatic line of makeup, which came in a slew of shades specially made to make the skin appear as a quote-unquote natural shade of gray on screen. The makeup apparently had a lot of brown undertones to go with the orange lights. Factor remained an important figure in the makeup industry and of course built a makeup empire in his name until his death in 1938. Before that, almost every major movie actress was a regular customer of the Max Factor Beauty Salon. Today, the building is home to a very campy movie museum, and the first floor features scores of examples of his work in the motion picture industry. His son, Max Factor Jr., would inherit the family empire. Speaking of family empires, side note, this kind of stuff always makes me laugh, like how much early film was all in the family, especially now because everyone gets so twitchy about nepo babies, like this, this town was built on nepo babies. But one of the other first hair and makeup artists to come out of this era was George Westmore. Like Max Factor, Westmore was also a European immigrant with experience in wig making. Westmore would freelance across every major Hollywood studio starting in the 1910s. He is credited, amongst many looks, with coming up with Mary Pickford's famous tight curls, now better known as Shirley Temple hair, which can confirm because I have hair very similar to this, especially when I was younger, and it was always referenced to as the latter. But essentially, it's the very tight corkscrew-looking curls. To get Pickford's hair to look like this, Westmore installed, applied, whatever you call it, a Series of extensions to mary's head each day westmore taught his craft to his sons as well and by 1921 his son mont was the personal makeup artist for rudolph valentino mont would also claim that he was the one who formulated valentino's makeup to perfectly match the italian's complexion max factor would also claim to be the one to make valentino look like a movie star Perk Westmore, at just 19 years of age, would build the hair and makeup department at First National Pictures. He ran that department for 27 years, and Betty Davis would credit Perk in part for making her a star. He certainly made her look like one. Wally Westmore would work for Paramount's makeup department for 41 years, and Ern Westmore worked for RKO for three. So, yeah, the Westmore makeup dynasty was an integral part of the early film industry. Instead of a Westmore over at MGM, MGM had English actor Cecil Holland, who became known as the Man of a Thousand Faces. Holland was also the founder of the first makeup department to be founded at any film studio. Holland also wrote one of, if not the, first book on stage and film makeup in 1927. Holland kept the Thousand Faces mantle until it was taken over by actor Lon Chaney, whom Holland taught some of his trade secrets to. Cheney was not only an actor, but an accomplished makeup artist, both skills he had honed from coming up in the theater. He would use grease paint, of course, but also putty, mortician's wax, fish skin, crepe pear, and liquid plastic to achieve fantastical looks for Universal's early monster movies. He could also make wrinkles, scars, burns, and anything of the like— Cheney's best-known work is probably that of the Hunchback of Notre Dame from 1923's film of the same name, as well, of course, as playing the titular role in 1925's Fandom of the Opera. Both of those looks, Cheney developed himself. And of course, Cheney was in the minority in making himself look grotesque, as most men and women on the screen at this time wanted to look gorgeous. Their popularity often depended on that fact. The advent of sound films in the late 1920s led to a shift in how makeup was used. Actors' faces needed to be more visible to convey nuances of the performances. In response, makeup artists began to use more subtle techniques, emphasizing contouring and shading to enhance the actors' features. One of the most popular hairstyles to come out of the 1920s was the flapper look, which was popularized by actresses like Clara Bow and was popularly known as The Look. While this name encompassed the entire look of a flapper, as time went on, it really meant just the bob hairstyle, though originally it also included the super thin eyebrows, which I, Gen Zers, knock that shit off. We do not want those back. They will stop growing normal when thin eyebrows go out of vogue. Also, uh, smoky eyeshadow and cupid bow lips. The look has been given credit as the first hairstyle perfected for the art of film and was a break in the stereotype that in order to be considered feminine, you had to have gorgeous flowing locks. This portrayal of a modern woman also marked the first time that a film's style, or at least a makeup style, reflected the society around it, a practice that would become more and more prevalent as time went on. Monster movies were all the rage for a good chunk of the early to mid-1930s, and Jack Pierce was their major maker. Pierce created not only the iconic look of the monster in Frankenstein, but also the look of his bride, whose hair was achieved by combing the actress's hair over a cage. He also gave Dracula his widow's peak, and created the look for the titular wolfman. The hair for the Wolfman, and for most of the fake monsters from at least this time, were made from yak fur because it was thick and easy to manipulate. While the results were fantastical, the hours actors would be required to sit in the makeup chair might as well be considered literal torture. Boris Karloff had to sit in the chair for eight hours to become the mummy version of Imhotep for The Mummy, and that's not even close to the record. Longest I came across while researching this week was Rod Steiger, who had to be in the makeup chair for 20 hours while makeup artists and their assistants painted tattoos on his body for the 1969 film The Illustrated man. All of the makeup artists up to this point worked with what was referred to as out-of-the-kit techniques. By this point, many film studios had a standard-issue film makeup kit that looked like a thick old briefcase. The artists would be able to use the series of paints, lipsticks, balms, waxes, paints, what have you, to create what they could. There were exceptions. For example, a big production like Wizard of Oz, obviously they needed different things outside of the norm, but for the most part, most studios worked in this way. Not all of the early special effects makeup was super safe either. The silver makeup applied to actor Jack Halley to play the Tin Man was so harsh it made his cheeks bleed. Buddy Epson had originally been slated to play the character, but the makeup was so uncomfortable for him he had to quit. He did not die of lead poisoning, that is an urban legend though the thing had to be wildly carcinogenic like if you just made your face bleed. It reminds me of the radium girls. Anyway, the method of -of out-of-the-kit work would go more or less extinct in the 1940s as the makeup artists would begin customizing their kits for each job. Foam latex also became a more popular form of applying special effects makeup, which also significantly cut down on application time. Old artists like Jack Pierce, however, preferred the old ways and would ultimately be strong-armed out of film, eventually landing in TV as their methods were too archaic and time-consuming for film. Not everything was monster movies at this time, and the movie stars of the day like Marlene Dietrich and Claudette Colbert made stipulations in their contracts as to how they could be made up and photographed. The 1950s saw a period of significant technological advancement in the film industry, including the wide implementation of color film stock and also the widescreen format. These changes brought new challenges for makeup artists and hairstylists who needed to adapt their techniques once more. The use of color film required makeup artists to use more natural-looking cosmetics, as bright or exaggerated colors would appear absolutely horrifically on screen. The widescreen format meant that hairstyles needed to be bigger and more dramatic to fill the larger frames. Big advances in prosthetics were made by John Chambers, Ben Nye, and a team of 80 artists working on Planet of the Apes in 1968. The film would be recognized by the Academy Awards in 1968 with a special Oscar for this breakthrough, but it would take an additional 13 years for a permanent makeup and hairstyling Oscar to be added to the permanent list of awards. Once the Oscar category was added, though, Hollywood was experiencing a boom in fantasy and sci-fi films thanks to movies like Star Wars. Film budgets began to grow large enough to make these larger films, which led to an increase in the budgets for the hair and makeup departments, which of course led to advancements in the medium. For makeup, this led to the usage of liquid latex that was developed and widely used for prosthetics. This was also the era that saw the emergence of artists like Rick Baker, who won the first Academy Award for Best Makeup in 1981 for his work on An American Werewolf in London. The transformation scene in that film required the actor to be in the makeup chair for 10 hours. Keep in mind, that's 10 hours before that dude even has started doing his actual job. And I'm guessing it wasn't too hard to scream and look like you were in agony after what you just went through sitting in a chair for 10 hours, which is what the performance required. I, you know, man, I can't sit still for 10 minutes, much less 10 hours. Whew. The rise of digital technology in the 1990s and 2000s brought new opportunities and challenges for hair and makeup artists, as now computer-generated imagery and special effects can create even more elaborate and sometimes fantastical looks for actors, see Avatar. Practical makeup effects are so common in Hollywood, but with the advancements of performance capture technology and visual effects, some productions have gone on to use a mixture of both mediums or just opt for full CGI. There are a lot of factors that determine which method is used, for example, budget, the work involved, time, and or a director or actor's preference. So yeah, that's the history of makeup and hairstyling for film in a nutshell. Alor did a really great video that demonstrates the changes in the Hollywood glamour looks, which you know, it is interesting to watch, but it's I, I had written it all out. It was horrible to listen to. So I've linked that down in the show notes so you can see it. It's just, you know, the, it's, it's a lot of change in the eyebrows and lipstick colors, but it just it was not very interesting to listen to. So I cut that out. But yeah, I highly recommend looking at it because it's it's very subtle, but it's very interesting to see how like the eras dictated the, the on-screen makeup looks. So now that you have a baseline for how we got here, let's take a look at what modern makeup artists and hairstylists do. Hair and makeup artists will typically begin their preparation by researching the project they will be working on. They will read the script or whatever is available to them to get a sense of the tone and style of the project and also to identify any specific requirements or challenges. If it's a period piece, they're obviously going to have to look into the era in question and go from there. Hair and makeup artists will meet with the director and other members of the production team to discuss the look they want to achieve for each character. They will need to understand the director's vision for the project and work collaboratively with the team to bring that vision to life. Once they have a sense of their project's requirements and the director's vision, hair and makeup artists will create designs and sketches for each character. They may use photographs, mood boards, and other reference materials to help them visualize the looks they want to achieve. Kind of similar to a production designer, the method used tends to vary from artist to artist. Hair and makeup artists will also need to gather the materials and products they need to create each look. This may include cosmetics, hair extensions, wigs, prosthetics, and any other materials. They may need to order specialized products or create custom pieces for certain characters. If the film is big enough, they'll likely also have assistants and runners to assist in this process. While special effects makeup is constantly evolving, the most common current practice of starting this process is known as life casting. The first step is to completely cover an actor's entire head in silicone to make a mold. Once the silicone has dried on the actor's face, plaster strips are placed on top to make a hard cast. Then when the plaster is set, it and the silicone are removed from the actor's head. As someone who is super claustrophobic, even watching this get done is so uh, ick for me. It just just looks like a bad time, like you breathe through a straw. (laughs) Nightmare fuel for me, personally. The cast they take is then used to create a 3D replica of the actor's face. Most oftentimes I've seen these, they kind of look like a bust of that actor sleeping. Makeup artists then use that mold to create custom prosthetic pieces that will fit the actor perfectly. This isn't used just for creating monsters and aliens, it can also be used to age an actor or help them match the look of a real person. Before the shoot, hair and makeup artists will need to test each look to ensure that it works well on the actor or performer and also make sure that it gets the sign off from the director. This typically means a makeup and or hair test to see how the look holds up under different lighting conditions and they will make any necessary adjustments from When filming begins, of course, the primary responsibilities of hair and makeup artists on the set is to apply makeup and hair to the actors each day. Throughout the day, they are responsible for touching up the actor's hair and makeup to ensure that their appearance remains consistent and camera ready. This may involve completely redoing the makeup, adjusting the hairstyles, or applying powder to reduce shine. In doing this, hair and makeup artists ensure a level of continuity throughout the production. They will take detailed notes and photographs to ensure that each actor's appearance remains consistent from shot to shot and from day to day. The script supervisor unset will likely also be assisting in this process. And while we're here, There's some distinctions you should know within the hair and makeup department as far as, you know, job titles. The makeup department or hair department is led by the key makeup or hair artist, stylist, whatever. They do everything I discussed earlier pertaining to the pre-production and will hire the other members of their crew. During production, the key makeup artist does the lead actor's everyday makeup and delegates jobs to their crew, continually overseeing everything throughout the film shoot. Then there's also just the regular makeup artist or hairstylist who does the makeup and for the supporting cast, maybe the extras, what have you. Both of these departments might have assistants who help them with more intricate procedures. For makeup, this would include extensive face painting or body art. Think Mystique in the X-Men movies. These assistants may also be in charge of organizing kits and other minor jobs. Finally, for makeup, you'll have a special effects artist who is the person whose job it is to make actors look like zombies, aliens, monsters, aging them with prosthetics, making them look like famous people, whatever can be basically done with latex and the other stuff. The entire hair and makeup unit on a big budget works within a specialized hair makeup trailer situation. Smaller productions, it can be as low-key as just a designated corner of the set with a makeup chair. So now that you know what they do, how does one become a hair or makeup artist for a film? Well, achieving this requires a combination of technical skills, creativity, and professional experience. To become a hair or makeup artist, you will need to develop technical skills in hairstyling and makeup application. You can specialize later. To start off, it's smart to have both in your arsenal. Consider taking classes or workshops to improve your skills, or get formal training from a beauty school or makeup academy. Many schools also offer specialized programs in makeup for film and television. Cosmetology school isn't necessarily required, but is highly recommended. You should also study your state's rules dealing with cosmetology, bacteriology, sanitation, and business because it varies from state to state. After mastering cosmetology fundamentals, you must take a certification exam and register as a professional makeup artist. There's a test and registry for hairstylers as well. It's also recommended to take at least a basic acting class so hair and makeup artists have an understanding of how their canvases do their work. Once trained and legit, they'll need to showcase their work and attract potential clients. And to do this, they will need to start building a portfolio of their best hair and makeup designs. Most people start out doing this by practicing on friends and family members. You're also going to need to have to build relationships with industry professionals, as that can help you find work in the film industry. Attend industry events, join professional associations, and make connections through social media platforms. You've also got to know the business. Look for opportunities to gain professional experience in the film industry, such as working as an assistant to a hair or makeup artist or finding work on student films. This can help you to develop your skills and build your network of contacts. The film industry, especially now, it's constantly changing, so it's also important to stay up to date on the latest trends in hair and makeup design. So there you have it. It took nearly 60 years for hair and makeup artists to gain the professional respect in Hollywood they deserved. But since then, I don't think anybody questions the worthiness of this department. Well, except the Academy last year when they removed this award from the telecast. But, you know, semantics. that's going to do it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media, where I also post photos for each episode. At Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, on Facebook at the Tinsel Factory, or you can always email me at tinselfactorypod at gmail.com. I've got a Letterboxd account, which features my watch lists, film diary, and recommended viewing for this episode. You can check it out with the link in the show notes. I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there, so if you could please rate, review, and subscribe so that other people can find this podcast, that would be a huge help. In order to keep making the podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find it in the show notes. If you'd like to help out in any way, I'd very much appreciate it. My beats just broke, so that means I have to edit this episode with my AirPods, which I'm not a fan, so <sighs> dreading paying for that, but you know, part of the part of the gig. I've also got Buy Me a Coffee. where you buy me a coffee? I'm recording this at 8 o'clock at night on Friday, so I am not drinking coffee because I would like to sleep, but I'm also seeing Ant-Man again on Saturday, so... <laughs> I need to, I need to, you know, get a head start on this. I also got merch. Check it out. The link in the show notes. Next week at long last, we discuss the traipsers of the boards, the actors. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, that's a wrap.